I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it back. Bring it to the bank. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. I'm Sam Cox, and I'm the Southampton representative for today's show. Hi, I'm uh, Steve McGookin, and I'm calling in from Belfast, and I'm a former chairman of the New York Spurs supporters. Hi, I'm Jake, Newcastle fan, and you can get me on Twitter at JakeJackman with two ends. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys. Also, uh, if people notice, no show last week. Sorry about that. Had some scheduling issues. But because of that, we weren't able to talk about fans being back in stands, uh, which now we've obviously had for a couple of weeks. Now that it's happened, uh, what have your initial reactions been to having those fans back in the stadium? And what impact do you think it might be having on, on play or results thus far? Well, first of all, I think it's fantastic to see some fans back in back in stadiums. Um, it's been a long time coming, of course, and uh, it's just great to have uh, have have supporters in the grounds. I think it's changed the game kind of substantially already so far. I think the atmosphere is completely different for players. Of course, that was always going to be the case. Um, the argument to say that home advantage has come back, as uh, as we we're talking before the show, that if Arsenal see our results today, every home team would have. We've got at least a point. Um, and I think it's just for the players, I think they benefit off that as well um, to, to bounce off the fans, especially, obviously, as I said, at home. Um, in general, though, I think just the atmosphere, um, some players who were able to build up a good bit of form without the pressure fans being there have been able to carry on um, and are now putting those performances uh, uh, in uh, for, for the fans to see. I absolutely agree. I think it is great to see any sort of indicator of normality um, back again, to be honest. But, uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the two games today, uh, you know, the our game at Palace and the Fulham-Liverpool game, one of the special things about those games was the crowd sounds, you know, the actual uh, sense of the involvement and reaction among the crowd to, to what was happening on the... Uh, on the pitch, and 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 it's no accident, for example, that there were there weren't any fans at Old Trafford for the for the Manchester derby the other day, which you know was was four hours. I'll never get back. Um, but but also bear in mind both those crowds at Selhurst Park and and Craven Cottage, um, they're they're smaller grounds where the fans are closer to to what's going on, and and they were able to make an awful lot more noise than it sounded for two thousand. For 2,000 fans, and and obviously the atmosphere, uh, you know, as Sam said, makes makes a difference for the home team and their relative intensity and the ebb and flow of the game as well. I mean, for us, um, it, it was definitely good to have the fans back for for the Antwerp game last week, but obviously 2,000 in a in a much bigger stadium 
uh, have to shout that much that much louder to make themselves heard. So I, I, I think while while I am welcoming the fans back, it's, it is going to be interesting because um, having no fans at any of the games probably meant that home advantage counted for less. And, and while there is a, a divergence uh, with the tier system in which stadiums can have fans and which can't, then that is going to be another dynamic in the uh, in the mix in in terms of uh, a team's performance over the over the stretch of the season. So I let's wait and see how the how the tier system um, uh, plays out in the new year and how much longer some teams have to go without any fans at all uh, before we are able to sort of quantify the effect that it has on on home team performance. Yeah, it's still still quite early. Um, to make any sweeping judgments, um, still quite a small sample size. But you, I think Everton was the team for me this week um, that looked like they, they, you know, their performances uh, with fans back was chalk and cheese from what I've seen from them uh, recently. It was a, a complete change. They seemed um, just just to be playing at a higher intensity, and it's definitely um, you could definitely say that there's a uh, strong cooperation with um, that and having fans back. So it's definitely going to be one to follow. Um, it's good to have fans back, obviously. Hopefully we're going to get a lot more back and, and all teams will be able to, to have at least 2,000 in sooner rather than later. But um, if this sort of dynamic does go on for the next, I don't know, three, four, five weeks uh, with some teams not having fans in compared to others, and, and if, you know, if there does seem to be a, a stronger... Um, relation between uh, results and the benefits that can have. You can definitely see that certain clubs might start to, to maybe even complain about it. Um, because last year when, when fans stuff coming in, there were certain teams that maybe you thought it dropped their performances. Maybe two teams currently in the bottom three, Burnley and Sheffield United might be the, the, the two teams that you could say it affected most. Um, I don't think either of them can have fans in yet. So it's... it's um, yeah, it's an interesting one to follow. Um, I think it's good that they're back in, and, and hopefully more, more, more fans will be going back in at all stadiums. Hopefully, it will get increased to four thousand, and hopefully more and more as, as things improve. But yeah, it's, um, it, it definitely feels slightly uh, odd to me that, or it's slightly unfair that it, certain clubs can benefit from it. Because watching Fulham this weekend, Everton, as I said. Um, you could definitely see the benefits that were there. Um, and if you watched the football yesterday, um, it was four matches. Of, I think the Wolves Villa game and the Newcastle West Brom game, there weren't fans. Um, and then the Manchester uh, Manchester Derby, there weren't fans. Then you watch the Everton game. It, it, it looked like completely different sports of the first three games I watched in, in terms of intensity. So, yes, yeah, it definitely has an impact. And, and I'll be interested to see what, what the rest, what um, the clubs say if it goes on for much longer with. with um, if, if all clubs can't have fans back in because uh, it's an interesting one to follow and I can definitely see why certain clubs have had to complain. Yeah, I think it's in the interest of the of the league and the interest of the Premier League to try and mitigate the damage or mitigate the effect across all teams equally if they possibly can. And so that, that sort of striving for consistency uh, is, is going to be a really big um, consideration going forward. Yeah, I guess that's a good question since all of you kind of mentioned it there. If there ends up being this kind of disproportionate amount of fans let in 
for different clubs over an extended period of time. Say the Manchester clubs can't get fans back in until February or March. Do you think people would view whoever wins the title with a bit of an asterisk because of this discrepancy? Or will that eventually just be forgotten and the title will be the title for whoever wins it? I think some will for sure. And I think Steve made a really good point earlier when he said about, you know, certain teams may benefit off it. I would would put, you know, a decent amount of money on the fact that, that Fulham may have lost today's game had no fans been in, been in the ground just for the way in which the, the, the players can, can control that situation. But I think they fed off the crowd today. I watched that game today with, with intent and, and with the fans being there. Um, Fulham really did did perform for them, and uh, yeah, I think I think some some fans. I mean, the fans who lose out in the titles, or the fans who will be limited due to the tier system that, that Steve also mentioned, will, will also have um, things to complain about, and, and potentially rightly so. Um, as you say, it does seem a little bit at times unfair for for, for teams in, in in you know higher tiers and those those in the lower tiers. Um, but I think overall it will be one of those things that perhaps we're just going to have to get used to as, as we've had a lot of things to contend with recently. So I think um, initially there'll be, be a lot of, a lot of begrudgement um, and, and people uh, feeling a little bit hard done by, but I think overall, I think it's just, we've accepted that this season isn't going to be a normal season. Um, and, and many others will, will agree that I think that's just the way it's going to be this season. I think there will be an asterisk by the season anyway, even mm. if it's not for the crowds. Just because yeah, of the no off-season and everything? Yeah. And the schedule. I think um, I think you could maybe talk about fans and the impact they had this weekend, but I think it was noticeable that outside of Leicester, who are currently 3-0 up as we record, none of the teams that played in Europe actually won. So it's, um, maybe that is going to be a bigger um, influence on who wins the title than... Uh, the, the the situation with fans going in or out um, because it's 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 the first game of the Christmas schedule as games midweek and the, and I think there's Carabao Cup um, quarterfinals in next midweek so over this period we're definitely going to see those that have been in Europe playing the games that they have been I know clubs complained about it Guardiola has Solskjaer has I think all all the managers that are in Europe have complained about it and and I think there's definitely some validity to to their comments and. This weekend, I think, definitely backed that up. Um, the Manchester derby in particular was just an yeah. awful watch with mm-hmm. both both sets of players just walking through the game. And it, I don't think that was due to the instructions from the managers. I think that was just that players are starting to, to really feel the, the effects of the schedule. So, yeah, I think that for me, that's going to have a bigger mm-hmm. impact. And that's probably where the asterisk is going to come from more yeah. than what's going on with fans. Just to expand on that, I think when you talk about the schedule, I also think international football... Yeah. The schedules before obviously the break now till till March, but before then, I think international football uh, really didn't help with players having to go fly all over all over the globe really in, in during this pandemic, and and teams have suffered from that. We've seen Salah and and Mane both contract the virus and and had to miss key key matches for their size. Um, and as you say, I think the scheduling and the way European football and international football has has contributed to. The injuries to rotation, um, I think that will be uh, play a bigger part in the asterisk next to the title winners this season for sure. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely uh, crucial point, and and it wouldn't surprise me as all, at all if they if they just suspend international friendlies for the next break. Yeah, because I think all of the competitive things are over except maybe some nations league stuff. Mm. 
But yeah. regardless, just just put a pause on that, especially since you're going to be having the Euros in the summer anyway. It feels yeah. pretty uh, unnecessary, although you could argue that, you know, we're going to see a much worse Euros because if they do shut down the internationals and then they only have a short camp to go into it because of the adjustment to the length of the season and everything, that maybe it'll just be really awful. But we'll burn that bridge when we get to it, I suppose. Uh, another thing that really blew up last week and then continued through the discourse all of this week was what some are deeming to be the Harry Kane foul trademark. Um, so it's obviously for those that haven't seen um, either when you just stand still and then let the defender come over the top of you or you back into their legs to kind of undercut them uh, on headers rather than going up and challenging it for it yourself. Uh, when this originally cropped up um, and blew up uh, maybe a month or so ago, I was mentioning that Kane has always done this. He does not go up and challenge for headers uh, really unless he's in the box um, on, on set pieces and the like. So this was not a new thing for me, so I was very surprised by the sudden outrage. Uh, now everybody's looking out for all of the instances of it. Uh, there were two in your match today, Sam, one on each side mm -hmm. uh, with Walcott and McBurney. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin had one also yesterday. Um, so curious to hear from you guys, why do you think Kane in particular is kind of the poster boy for this and this kind of collision? And if you think that this does actually need to be banned from the game, if it actually is an issue of player safety or if this is just the hot topic issue of the moment? Um, I think to answer your first point, I think Kane probably gets singled out because his matches and his performance have been under scrutiny for, for some time in terms of the spotlights on him constantly because people are trying to not put him down as such or, or people are just trying trying to get some validity in, in arguments against him or, or for him. And I think these are just those moments and games that crop up and people are now starting to take notice of it. Um do I think it should be banned? No. Do I think it's dangerous play? No. At times it, it can appear that um, appear that way. And I know players, obviously, when they go in the air and, and they make contact with Kane, whether it's him falling to the ground or, as you say, just standing still and letting the, the motion happen. But the way in which it's been scrutinised and analysed recently has been down to the slow motion replays of it. And I think slow motion replays of anything in football makes situations look worse. Um, and as I said, I think... Kane's career, ever since he broke onto the scene and, and scored all those goals for, for Pochettino, he's always been under the microscope. He's always, people have always tried to put him down. You know, they made arguments of him being a one season wonder. That was rubbished, you know, almost immediately the season after. And I think the scrutiny levels are, are there for him. Um, and as you say, it's a, it's a common practice that happens in, in football matches, as you said, to, to happen today on either side. So you're not going to say that it's an unfair advantage. You know, Ollie McBurney did, did the same as Theo Walker earlier. Um, and as you say, Calvert-Lewin also does the same. So it's forward players just trying to gain an advantage. And I, and I don't see how it could be deemed as dangerous players. Everyone's sort of at it. Yeah, it may or may not cause an injury, but, but you know, in the near future or in long term. But there's so many other situations in games that players do to gain advantage, which also look bad and can also, you know, be deemed as dangerous players. At the end of the day, I think you need to just notify as what it is it's a contact sport and he's just trying to gain an advantage yeah as i said it, it it may or may not cause an injury but i think the reason kane's hung up on it at the moment is one he's england captain two he's playing in a team at the moment in time fighting for the league fighting for the title um and that's the difference between a player like harry kane doing it and someone like ollie mcburney who's playing for sheffield united here at the foot of the table yeah i i think that's absolutely right i, I think they're just part of the game i mean most most target men do it to some extent or another and it's it's really just part of how you're 
um, able able to use your body to the best advantage. I mean, the problem, I suppose, comes with the unpredictability of a fall, uh, and and whether you might be endangering an opponent by you know using your strength in a particular way. I mean, an awkward or unexpected fall, I suppose, can result in a in a dislocated shoulder. Uh, but but then that's the case for any aerial challenge in the game. And, and as you say, Sam, I mean, it's a contact sport. I mean, I, I didn't talk about Kane specifically. I didn't think that challenge uh, between Kane and Lalana, uh, for example, was, was that clear cut. I mean, we're probably only talking about it because it resulted in a penalty. Um, but the ref will usually or should be able to, to see whether a player looks at the opposing player before they have the contact and, and you know, try to gauge the intent behind it there. But I think I think we're just consigned to endure these challenges for and against our, our teams. I mean, I, I remember uh, both Drogba and Costa were particularly good at it when when they were at uh, when they were at Chelsea. So it's, it's just a part of the game. I guess it's one of those things that do, do you only want things to become um, a big conversation if something bad happens off it. So, you know, the c- concussion sub thing came up recently because of what happened with uh, Raul Jimenez and David Luiz and David Luiz staying on the pitch. That, that you know, that conversation arose because something awful happened. Um, mm. uh, so maybe this is football trying to get ahead of the conversation before somebody does get seriously hurt. That might be another way of looking at it. It's, there's always going to be contact on the pitch. There's always going to be a danger that you could you could go onto a football pitch and end your career or, or get a serious injury. Um, it, it, there's that risk there. And I guess now that what we need to do and continue to do, and I think that what football has been doing is decrease on that risk as much as possible. I think the concussion thing is probably the, the next thing to happen, concussion subs coming in. But this this does seem like Kane is being picked up on it. I think mainly because of the way they won the penalty, I think, was it against Brighton? I think it's because it led to a penalty that it became such hmm. a big conversation. Um, whereas if it happens outside the box and there's not that, um, I guess, big gain off it, doesn't seem that big but now because it was involved in that big moment it's always going to be picked up on every time he does it um and it, it is it is dangerous um you, you only have to look at the way players go down afterwards to, to see that something bad could happen from it so i think it's something that needs to, that the i guess the fa and um the ifab need to look at and, and maybe that is a a yellow card offense from now on and, and that needs to start being picked up as, as a foul by the attacker before something bad does happen because it, the the way that Tottenham won the penalty of it was, was ridiculous they managed to get a penalty off something that, that Kane's probably making the foul on because he has no interest in playing the ball there he's, he's merely there to to disrupt the, the the other player who's going off for the header so yeah I sort of lean on the, the side that it is a foul and it is dangerous play um because you could you could see that something bad could happen, and we should only be reactionary if something did happen. Say if Lilana went down and um, I don't know injured, injured his back or his neck and had to and uh, missed a great deal of football, would everybody then have a different opinion on it? Probably. So we shouldn't be waiting for that that doomsday right. scenario before we make before we change our opinion on it. I think that we it. It, it's something that could easily be outlawed from the game or at least be made a yellow card offence. And I think that, that probably will happen with the way the, the media are sort of bringing a microscope to it. So I think that's probably the, the, the way it's going. And yeah, the, the, the game changes all the time. So yeah, I think this thing in particular, 
Um, it it does happen a lot, and you're starting to notice it more now because of the way it's been brought up. So yeah, I think it's it probably should be a a foul by the attacking player, and yeah, probably we'll see that come in. And uh, as I say, we should only just wait for for something bad to happen before having that opinion. We can clearly see the danger posed by it. So yeah, we need to anything that that could have that that danger or, or pose a threat to a player that could lead to them having neck or back or head injuries. Yeah, that's something that we should probably take more seriously. That's an interesting point, and it would be better if football were more proactive about this instead of needing one or at least two cases, because um, obviously nothing happened after that Luis Jimenez uh, situation you mentioned earlier. It would be nice to get ahead of it. Um, for you, you mentioned it potentially being a yellow card challenge, obviously in, in some American sports, which has been a place that this conversation has tended to go online, where you do have endangering the opponent as as penalties or fouls in different sports. Um, would you ramp it up? Maybe it just be like a foul for a year or two and then it be a yellow card one? Or would you just be like, listen, there's a high chance of injury with this kind of collision. We just need to do it now. Also, uh, it should be noted that while you mentioned that there haven't been any like high profile ones and we should avoid that, it is interesting that I can't remember a single significant injury coming from it. Not that it couldn't cause it, certainly, but just interesting that if you tried to go to the data to try to prove that we need to take this more seriously, that it might not really be there. I think if the if the league want to out, uh, outlaw this from the game, then then it'll have to be immediately a yellow card. I don't particularly see the need to to do that. Um, I think Steve's point was was spot on with just the unpredictability of of the falls, and and then the way in which that those those falls um, look slowed down and in replays make, make it look look ten times worse. So as I say, if they if they want to get it rid of it from the game, rid of our game, then they'll have to start making it a yellow card offence, um, and then and then strikers will 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 be put off, you know, using that their body to to that type of advantage. But as I said earlier, I I don't see the need to to try and get it out of the game. I guess I guess what I would say to to that is what is Harry Kane? What what is he trying to do in that situation? He's not trying to win the ball, so anything for me that isn't directly challenging for the ball or trying to have a positive impact on the game. Um, I mean, it's sketchy at best. So if, if, if he's challenging for the header, um, you know, and I have, I have let, I have more sympathy for players um, or at least I can understand it more like a, a, a flailing arm, you know, that's a yellow card, but the players going for the ball, I guess that, that's the way I'm looking at it is what is he trying to do there? He's only trying to disrupt the player. Um, and knock him off balance, or he knows that the, the danger it could pose. So that, that's that's the way I look at it. It's he's not challenging for the ball, and and if you've got no interest in challenging for the ball, then and, and you're obstructing and endangering an, an opposition player, that's probably a yellow card, and it, it probably should be. That's I think cool. there's a conversation to be had about uh, about how we take how seriously we take this, and uh, and definitely I think if it is. If it does become an offence, then it should be a yellow card. But uh, yeah, I think I think as Kevin said, we want to look at the data not just from the Premier League, but uh, for any potential injuries throughout football, uh, and see if there's uh, if there's a correlation between uh, those challenges or non-challenges and uh, and any players who get injured. So yeah, I'm open to having the conversation. I'm just saying that, that you know that that's essentially how the game is played at the moment and has been uh and um and but drawing drawing attention to it is is no bad thing absolutely no bad thing just to just to comment on your point Joe, when you said about 
you know, not not trying to get. I, I completely agree with what you're saying if they're not trying to get the ball, but there's other ways of drawing fouls, and you see it all over the pitch. And I think just just one way of, of doing it and, and trying to gain a foul in the final third, or or trying to you know alleviate some pressure when when he's doing it from a defensive standpoint. But I completely agree with what you're saying. And if it continues to show, and, and what you're saying, see about the conversation, if the evidence and shows, and people believe it is just a, a way to, to, to deliberately endanger an opponent, then yeah, for sure it needs to be, uh, you know, out of the game. But I think at the moment in time, the way in which we've seen it, I think it's just one of those ways of trying to draw a foul, which, which we can see, you know, in other jewels all over the pitch. Yeah, we'll certainly keep track of this over time, and I'm sure that this uh, narrative won't go away. But glad that we were able to, to talk through it reasonably rather than just people yelling on the internet, which seems to have been the level of discourse that I've seen uh, most frequently since all of this kicked up. And Jake, you were absolutely right. It was that Brighton match with Lalana. Um, all right, we'll finish up this section by talking about managers. So we've made it to December without a single Premier League manager being sacked. I do think it's important to note when discussing this and the title race, that we're not as far into the match calendar as we typically are at this point. So just because it's very late in the actual calendar, we're just 12 matches in. So it might. this is more of like the early November to, to mid-November time typically. But are you surprised that so many boardrooms and owners have been patient this season? And once that eventually goes, who do you think will be the first one? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a few factors as to to why we haven't seen you know a manager depart yet. Um, the main one being the the financial complications from from COVID nineteen. No one quite knows just yet how how football will be. You know, club clubs will be financially struck by this. Um, and, and the last thing they want to do is have to pay out you know a hefty hefty severance package for for managers at this moment in time. Um, I also think the club. There's, there's club-specific narratives at the moment as to why why they haven't been sacked. And as you look at Chris Wilder at Sheffield United, what he's done at the club has brought him all the time in the world to turn this round. You know, brought them from League One up to the Premier League and did so well last season. Um, and then if you look at the candidates at the start of the season that you you probably would have thought, okay, they may be sat. You know, potentially David Moyes at West Ham is doing a fantastic job there. Uh, Steve Bruce at Newcastle. I know Jake will, will will be able to talk a lot more than me on that. But at the moment, they're not quite in the, in the danger zone which would probably warrant him being sacked um having said that um i think if you if i'm drawing on someone who who potentially could be first to go uh, i look at you know I, I look at Mikel Arteta at arsenal i really do and i, I and i think at the, the start of the season there was a lot of optimism about the season for him and i think that's what's you know served him you know, not not too well um, because of what they've won last season. The FA Cup won the Community Shield as well, um, but it's just not quite happening for him at the moment in the club. Um, but the reason I think his job will, will be safe, I think, is he's a young manager. You know, the club knew that he, he he's there to learn. You know, almost on the job. Um, but as I say, I think performances and, and and results in the league do need to pick up if he's not to be the first manager sacked. And I also just wanted to make another point that. In this in this time of of COVID nineteen, the managerial options at the moment may not be great for clubs to to bring people in. If you look at someone like Pochettino, I think he would have to look at a club and think, why would I enter enter a job midway through the season in in the most uncertain time in in, in football history? So I think there's a lack of options out there as well. So so clubs are more more inclined to keep hold of who they have. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's absolutely right uh, with the uncertainty about the surrounding the season and, and probably next season as well. 
But I, I, you're absolutely right. The, the problem with sacking a manager mid-season or even, as, as Kevin pointed out, relatively early in the season, as we still are, is who, who's going to be available? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's always more choice at the end of a season. And, uh, and do you always necessarily get a bump uh, just from changing your manager? Again, it depends on the circumstances, depends who you're able to bring in. As you mentioned, you know, poor old Sheffield United, um, you know, seem to be suffering from, from overachieving last year. Uh, so, and maybe that's just catching up with them. I mean, before their game today, one of their fans, I think, tweeted, the Blades look good for three points, not today, all season. Uh, and I, But I agree with you, Sam. I don't, I don't think they'll sack Chris Wilder. Uh, I mean, he's the, he's the fellow that brought them to the dance after all. And I, and I see the owners already today have, have given him the dreaded vote of confidence. Um, but you know, as I say, we're early, it's early days. All it takes is for a team in the bottom six or seven uh, to have a particularly bad run of three or four games and look like they're floundering for a board to panic. Um, but right now it's, it's hard to see who that might be. Although, you know, to a certain extent, I have a sympathy for, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um, especially while Pochettino is out of a job. Um, because every downturn that United seem to have, um, you know, the Pochettino whispers get louder. So there's always that. There's always the specter of, of that going on. But it, right now, it's it's kind of impossible to see who might be the uh, who might be the first to lose their job. Yeah, I think a, a point worth making on this is that um, normally you get a feeling on which managers are close to being sacked based on you know what you hear from. The, from the stands, um, you don't have that um, jury anymore to judge a manager on, and I think especially at boardroom level, um, that's probably where they take a lot of, uh, at least that they take some sort of um, opinion on it from, and they're not going to be going on social media and seeing what's going on there. So I think that's definitely had an impact. Um, I know that for my own club, if they if if St James's Park was full, some of the football that we'd be playing, you, you you'd be getting booze and you'd be getting. Um, Bruce would be getting a lot of stick, but um, because it's being played uh, play behind closed doors, he can sort of be judged on the, the results alone. And, the, and I guess in that, that respect, he's doing uh, fine enough. Um, but I, I don't really know which manager I think will go first. It might be Slavon Bilic. I, I wasn't too impressed with West Brom yesterday, considering they were coming up against the team and trained for two weeks. And they, they were they had a, they were all right at the start of the second half, but they didn't look great. And I think they've had lower XG than their opponent in every game so far this season, which... I mean, that's that's not great. Um, I think for Sheffield United, they've been a little bit unfortunate. I still think that Wild is the right person for the job. As, as Steve said, he's been given the vote of confidence, but it does feel like it's a, a genuine one. Um, I've seen um, Sheffield United fans, at least I follow on social media, saying that they'd rather get rid of all the players than Chris Wilder. That's sort of how highly he is viewed. <laughs> so I, I really can't see him getting getting the sack. I think they really believe in him. And if, if they do go down, I think they'll, they'll completely back him to get them back up. So, yeah, I think that that's probably an on-starter. We've seen it before Dyche as well, and I guess um, um, Daniel Farker this year in, in the Championship. Um, when when a club does back their manager that got them there in the first place, it, it can quickly go right for them again. Look at what Dyche has done at Burnley since they went down the first time, and Daniel Farker's got Norwich top of the league. So, yeah, it's, it's, I can see why Sheffield United would, would back Wilder, but, yes, for me, it might be Billich, might go, um, or it would be one of the... One of the uh, 
the ex-player trident of Arteta, Lampard or Solskjaer. They're the three that are always... They seem to... There has to be one of them under incre- increasing pressure at all times. So yeah, I can't see all of them being in charge at the start of next season anyway. So, yeah, they're, they're probably the four for me that, that jump out. But there's, I don't think there's anybody else that's really doing a terrible job. You look at Brighton, I think Graham Potter's doing exactly what Chris Hewton did before, just getting them into that 15th, 16th position. Um which seems to be acceptable for Brighton, so I can't see him moving on. Um, and yeah, even Dyche at Burnley, similar to, to Wilder, they would not get anybody better than Sean Dyche, so they're not going to move him on, uh, regardless of what happens. So yeah, I just can't, can't really see um, many managerial changes, and, and the financial situation with COVID is not going to make anybody more willing to, to sack the manager. Um, and as uh, Sam and Steve both said, there's not a lot of other options out there. Um, and, and then, you know, if you're paying a severance package and then bringing in somebody else in big wages, maybe you're just going to want to sit it out um, and see what happens. There's a, a lot of examples of, of giving a manager time um, and, and they do manage to turn it around. I think if you look at Southampton and Hassan Hootle right now, uh, after the 9-0, many uh, uh, mm-hmm. a club owner might have got trigger happy after that. But look where they are now. I mean, sometimes you just got to go through the bad times to get the good times. So I, d- I don't think we're going to see many managerial seconds. But if we do, I can see it being... A billet or an Arteta or a Solskjaer. I just don't see anybody else that, that is in great danger at the moment. And, mm. and I think another name to add to your, your former players list, uh, I mean, look at how Fulham responded with uh, with Parker today. I mean, if he can get more performances like that out of them, uh, they're definitely starting to come together and play for him. So I don't think, I don't think even regardless of their, their league position, I don't think Scotty Parker's in any in any danger. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think a lot of the managers uh, that we've already discussed, the ones coming into the season, have done relatively well. Also, I don't think enough teams have lost enough consecutively, bar mm. Sheffield United, to like trigger that. Where like they might have a couple of bad losses, drop down the table, but then get like you mentioned there with Fulham, it's a draw against Liverpool. At the end of the season, it's one point, but it's a good result. So you obviously are going to like get at least a couple extra matches off of the back of something like that. So that could also be a factor. But I think you guys all raised some excellent points. Uh, We will take a quick break now, and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. All right, and we are back, Sam. We're going to talk a little bit about Southampton. So in the air quotes summer transfer window show, I gave Southampton a C-. minus. Uh, with the primary thought being that I didn't think you had improved specifically and immediately at any position. You made a lot of future buys, weren't going to help right now. Uh, Salisu and Diallo, zero minutes. Walcott, not exactly a young prospect, but he has about 600. Obviously, Walker Peters already was starting for you last year, and on the permanent transfer continues to do so. But despite all of that, you're just really good. I'm currently sitting in the top four. You don't have a particularly young squad, but do you think this is just you continuing to grow in Hasenhutl's way? Has it been a little bit of outperformance, a little bit of luck, or is this just kind of the trajectory that it feels like you're on now? Um, I, I would say a mixture of them all. I think, you know, I think all of the the praise needs to go down to Rav Hasenhutl um, for the distinct style of play he, he's got on, on this team. Um, and and the way he's getting every drop of ability out of of, of each member of the squad. Of course, as we said, this is going to be an under, unpredictable season. Uh, a lot of teams will be where be in places where where you know stereotypically they, they shouldn't really be. And I think we're probably taking advantage of that as much as as much as any other club. Um, but as I said, I think you know he talks about our transfer business, and and the, the main one was you know with the Walker Peter deal. People were questioning why we let Hoiberg go um, and not really replace him with anyone, you know, who who's had much Premier League experience. You know, we did bring in Diallo, um, but again, he has no Premier League experience. But his void has been has been filled massively by Oral Romeo. You know, he's him alongside Yannick Vestergaard have been our players of the season so far, um, and and these are players who have been at the club. Uh, a little while now. I know Vestergaard was brought in under Mark Hughes, um, and for a long time people thought that Vestergaard was a player who Saints had wasted 18 million pounds on, and and they'd be shipped out for, you know, a small percentage of that fee. But now he's looking like one of the first names on the team sheet, and I think that just goes down, as I said, to to Ralph Hasenhutl, who has just transformed a lot of players who looked very average, you know, for for a good reason under average managers in. Pellegrino and Mark Hughes but now when you see a real coach in, in charge of these players he's getting really good performances out of them and 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 we're benefiting we're benefiting from that yeah and absolutely credit to us for like what would it have been two and a half years ago uh both being like mm. wow that's a really good appointment you got the manager <laughs> now figure out the rest and it seems like uh you're well on your way to doing so even if it is internally and for those that watch the uh Tottenham Hotspur all or nothing documentary uh, there was a talk at, at one of the player tables where they were like, why do you always have to buy players to get better? Why can't you just trust the players that are there? And while you did dip into the transfer market, it really does seem like the players that you already had are really the ones kind of rowing this particular boat at the moment. Um, you do have some tough matchups coming up, though, uh, which might knock you out of your current top four perch, mm-hmm. but you could get back in there in the future. I'm not going to doubt you too much. Uh, but you have Arsenal, City, and Liverpool in the next five, Fulham and West Ham being the others. How many points do you need from that for you to like start getting a little sense of real belief that you could be in the European spots come the end of the year? I mean, I think t- I mean, 10 points out of those games would, would be fantastic. Um, realistically, I don't think we're going to get that. As you say, Liverpool and Man City, although, you know, Liverpool drew at Fulham today, I would argue that we are a much better side than Fulham. Mm. And both at Man home City. for you. Yeah, exactly. Man City as well, you know, 
haven't looked like their former selves in, in every game so far this season. I know they, they've got the ability to turn it on as and when they need to. Um, but as I say, I think, you know, at the moment we're in a really good position, th- third in the league at the time of recording. Um, but, you know, at the start of the season, we I think we need to need to remember that we finished, you know, in the bottom half of the table last season. Um, and although, that you know, we're riding a very good crest of a wave at the moment, you know, these results aren't particularly, may or may not be here forever. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that, they're all going to come crashing down and we're going to, you know, finish in the bottom half again. But what I'm saying is that, you know, it's all great fun to, to enjoy this while, while we have it, but not to get too down if, if results do, do begin to turn. Um, as you say, you know, we, when we played Manchester United, you know, we, we, we lost a two nil lead and, and lost the game and it was quite flattening. But again, as you said, uh, I think those results will happen for, for teams like us. So we're just going to be patient. Um, and if we focus on beating teams in and around us, then there's no reason why we can't finish in the Europa League place. Yeah, and then not to reveal too much, but before the show, you were like, yeah, I'd still take eighth, though, which I think is probably <laughs> fair. But as Steve was mentioning earlier, it is, it's just a weird, weird season. And if you can take advantage of it, uh, going however high you can, I'm sure you'll be... Very delighted with that. Also, just a bit of a live update. Burnley just going ahead 1-0 against Arsenal. So maybe put Arteta a little bit higher in your manager lists uh, from our previous conversation. All right, uh, coming to you now, Steve, to talk a little bit about Tottenham. At the top of the show, we talked more about Harry Kane based on all of the uh, controversy surrounding his approach to uh, to leaping defenders. But on the other hand, he's had just an absolutely absurd season this far both in terms of goals and assists. Obviously, uh, his role has shifted with him playing a bit further back. People were wondering who's going to be the Ericsson replacement. Uh, apparently, it's Harry Kane. Um, from from your eyes, is this just a thing that he will be able to continue to do? Is this just new tactic just worked too well thus far and eventually it'll come down back to the ground? Or is this just Kane's unpairing genuinely just going to be world-class? I, I think it's because of the partnership with Sonny. Uh, I think if 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 he was dropping back uh, deep the way he is at the moment, and we have the two wing backs sort of running uh, higher, um, then he has to have an outlet. He has to have an outball. If you think about, don't think about him as Ericsson. Think about him as Modric, somebody who reads the game in a much bigger picture, and the way Sonny moves um, into the space behind. Uh, uh, and the way the uh, Aurier or or Reguilon has, uh, have been moving into into space for for Harry, it's uh, that makes the passes much more telling and much more effective. Um, but it's again, it goes back to the, the the sense that do you want Harry setting you up, or do you want Harry being on the end of uh, of moves like that? And uh, you know, it, it seems to be working out both ways. Um, I mean, the last time we spoke. Kevin, I mean, it, it was a few weeks ago. We were coming up on the on the one year anniversary of Mourinho's arrival, and, and yeah. you know, we but we spoke a little bit about the. Um, you mentioned the the Amazon documentary and and the, the man management um, style that was on display there. But I think what's happened with Kane is just a, a function of how Mourinho has basically righted the ship. He's identified the frailties that that the team had, and and there were there were several. Uh, and he's now in the process of building a Mourinho team, and and so I mean I mean look at it, look where we are. I mean top of the league for the longest continuous time in in a couple of decades, 
Um, but also we have the best goal difference in the league with more goals scored against the top six than any other team. Hugo has five clean sheets so far this season. Um, we won the Europa group uh, quite impressively and nobody will want to draw us on, on Monday. Uh, and, and we're still in both domestic cups, which I, I, I think, I'm not sure, still means something to, to Mourinho. Um, mm. But I think the most significant thing, and this comes back to the Kane point, is that he has been building a, a squad um, with almost interchangeable talents at every position, and and his influence is is very clear in how the team's playing as a as a unit or a series of units. You know, the defence, the midfield, and and the uh, and the forwards. And if you look at, at recent games, the important thing is that our our, our collective confidence um, has been really high, which I which I think in a way is why today's game and result was so disappointing. I mean, we started out great. We're we were lucky to hang on towards the end of the first half, but then we went. We just went to sleep in the second half, and we didn't press that that advantage. But um, but it was almost as as if we were waiting for Palace to equalise to give us permission to play attacking football again. Yeah. Um, and it, and it was very telling. I think that Jose said after the game that he knew he knew at halftime how the second half was going to unfold and it was a he said it was a shame they didn't equalize earlier it was it would have given us more time to respond and and really i'm not sure i like that logic if i'm completely honest if we if we're going to play that game we have to put more stress on uh, our collective concentration uh if if only everyone was aware of the big picture of the game the way harry was this would be this would be easier um, and but we are getting to a point where everyone knows what their job is in every in every circumstance. But um, but we need to we definitely need to work on still work on defending set pieces. But then you know what what Spurs team of the past twenty years could you not say that about? <laughs> yeah, for those that don't know, we've now dropped nine points because of set pieces in the last ten minutes of matches, which is not particularly <laughs> ideal. Obviously, with the Liverpool draw, our draw doesn't look as bad. Uh, on paper, but these are the kind of situations where you really need to take advantage of those dropping points around you, especially considering we did already drop those points against Newcastle and West Ham and the like. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was related to today's match. Uh, you mentioned the post-match press conference. Another thing that he mentioned was uh, that he didn't blame Lloris, even though obviously Lloris just blocked the ball instead of catching it or, or parrying it away, which led to Schlupp being able to tuck it in. I was just curious where that was for you, because he just basically was like, Lloris is the best goalkeeper in the world. He won the World Cup, although he made a mistake in that World Cup, which I've always found to be a little bit annoying. Um, so for you, is Lloris just above reproach for you as the club captain, as the only person at our entire club that's uh, won silverware at that level? Or is this one of those, uh, he, he let in a mistake and we'll just have to move on with it? I have to say, I was really worried, and I think you and I talked about it at one stage after he won the World Cup that his his focus would would just drop off, that he would uh, shift completely. But um, but no, it doesn't seem to be that way. And I think Mourinho coming in has rejuvenated his love for the game. I mean, if you think about today's game in in isolation, their keeper had an absolute blinder. I mean, credit to Palace for the way they played, but their keeper was a big part of that. He, he definitely kept them in the game. Uh, you know when it was when it was one to nil, uh, but then you could say that he was at fault for uh, for Harry's goal. Um, so you, know, you you can blame individual instances, blame keepers for individual instances, but it's it it all comes down, I think, really to the confidence 
that the other players have in the keeper and in playing in front of them, especially somebody like Toby, Eric Dyer, um, you know, um, the, the confidence that Hugo exudes. Uh, and I think all of us would prefer that he maybe commands things a little bit better as a, as a skipper. But um, you, you can't. You can't blame. Well, I suppose you can blame him for for a momentary lapse. But again, it's something like um, our our inability to defend set pieces, our inability to to have uh, to maintain our concentration across all ninety minutes uh, is something that's gonna that's gonna come back and haunt us. Um, as as for Hugo being a beyond reproach, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would go that far. But when you think about it. Um, I'm lucky that we have him and that someone else doesn't. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I land too. He saved us so many more points than he's cost us that when he costs you points, which you could even argue whether or not that's what happened today, you just kind of have to shrug it off and and move on. Um, The other question I wanted to ask you is that the last two times we had those disappointing late-minute draws, we saw a change up to the team, the most recent against West Ham being that basically Davinson Sanchez and Harry Winks haven't gotten a sniff of Premier League football since. Do you think that'll happen after this one, or do you think Mourinho's already basically found his team? I think we'll know more about that uh, after Wednesday, uh, to be honest with you. I think he is looking at the way in which he sets the team up varies depending on who, who it is we're going up against and the, where that game comes in the run of games, um, so I, I think I think he knows his his primary eleven, uh, and I, I it, it's probably not that far off the the eleven that started today, um, but I think we'll know more about that on Wednesday and and, and the sort of tactical changes that mm-hmm. he might make. Um, I mean, I hope. I hope Ndombele starts again on Wednesday night because I think we need uh, we need him in the middle of the park. And also Sissoko had a great game today. I thought I thought he was uh, outstanding. And uh, and Sam, I, I have to take the opportunity to thank you for for Hjoiberg, um, the, the the only player that we have who has played every minute of every Premier League game so far this season. And you can Leads tell. The passes. Absolutely, you can tell that that he is becoming the rock on which Mourinho is building this team in his image. Uh, I mean, I, I was having a conversation with a, a Chelsea friend of mine uh, recently, and I was saying, you know, he he said, well, you know, Jose has come to Spurs with something to prove, and I said, well, that's the best kind of Mourinho is is when he has something to prove, and he wants to prove that it wasn't what he did with Chelsea wasn't a fluke, and the team that he's building, if you think about it. You know, not not to insult anybody, but uh, Harry is is his Lampard, and Hoiberg is becoming his his John Terry. The players that he relies on for for high quality contributions every week, and I think once he has those rocks in in the team, then he can build everything else. All the other parts um, uh, assemble around those. Gotcha. Well, I certainly hope that that happens and we continue to improve. Uh, Coming to you now, Jake, you already mentioned that you got that win despite having had just gone through the COVID outbreak in in the club and not being able to train. Uh, I know you haven't been particularly pleased with the style in which you've been picking up points thus far, but do you just have to be appreciative for those points and that performance, giving the scenario that led up to it? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the main thing was to, to get back playing football. And, and to just recover from it because the the result on Saturday was sort of secondary to everything because it's more important that the, the players and staff that are still suffering with it do get 
um, get well soon and can return. Uh, I think Fernandez was one of those, but he's, he's returned to training today, so that's a positive sign. It does look like the club are, are getting over it, and um, it was a it was a good game to come back into it because West Brom are, are pretty bad. Um, we started really quickly. I did think it was important that we started well because we might tire. Um, two weeks without training is, is going to have an impact on any team. Um, but yeah, we we, um, we managed it quite well, and then we sort of um, withdrew back into our shells. We always do under Steve Bruce. We can be very defensive, even if we are playing against a team that we should be yeah. Uh, um, it should be beaten, but yeah, West Brom got a good goal. It was poor defending, but um, yeah, after that, I thought we were going to settle out for a point. But Dwight Gale comes on and scores. Um, I think that's his like sixth, sixth Premier League goal in his last nine Premier League matches. So yeah, he's in some good form um, when he's not injured. So that was pleasing. And to get the three points, um, massive, especially with some of the other results going um, this weekend. If we'd have drew to West Brom or even lost, we'd you know be pulled back into it. And even though we currently have a nine point cushion to the bottom three, I do think we're one of the worst five teams in the league, so we always have to be keeping an eye on what's going on behind us. Um, so yeah, it's good that we we are getting these points um, on the board because it, yeah, as I, said, I don't think we're very good. So yeah, we've got Leeds and and Fulham coming up next, both teams that could easily beat us, but they're also two games that that we could win. Um, so we've got to be looking at at these next two games to get some more points. I'm not going to be greedy and say we want six points, but even if we get one win out of the two. Um, that would be good and, and put us in quite a strong position going into Christmas. So, yeah, it's a good result. But, yeah, it's, um, it's more about the players and the staff getting better than it was about the result on Saturday. So, yeah, we, we got we got both, which is good. Yeah, and then a thing that I'm sure you'll be pleased by was a pretty good performance by Joelinton, who's been kind of picking things up lately, also had a chance to score uh, a lovely cutback, really sent the defender flying, uh, didn't end up converting it. But it's a goal and two assists for him now in his last two matches, obviously over three weeks because of the uh, aforementioned not being able to do any of the football things. But kind of like uh, Sam was talking about with Vestergaard, it kind of seemed like Joelinton was just sunk money at this point and you weren't going to get much out of him. Is, is that hope kind of returning that he might turn into a productive member of your squad? Yeah, definitely. Um, even before these these um, these last two games, he, he did quite well in, in the Carabao Cup games he's played in. thought when he came on against Southampton, he came close to scoring. Uh, he had a header well saved by Alex McCarthy. So he's had a, he was starting to make a bit of an impact, even if it was from a, you know, a very low base. But yeah, he's come in and playing next to Callum Wilson and he does seem to work better when he's got um, Wilson to play off. He's very, um, we signed him as a number nine, but he's not that. He's not somebody that can play up front on his own. We tried him on the, as a winger, but again, he's not really that either. He definitely seems best as a, a support striker some, when he's playing off um, another player. I think that's how he played at Hoffenheim. So, yeah, it's good that we've got him into that role now. And, um, yeah, he looks really good. He's been creating chances. He's been getting a lot of shots in. He always seems to be getting on the end of our moves, which, which shows a sort of an intelligence that, that he we haven't previously been able to see because of um, just the way we were using him. But he's definitely grown in confidence. Um, was unlucky not to score again yesterday. So yeah, he's looking like he's, he's not a forty million pound footballer. What we paid for him, I think we can all agree on that. But it's important that if you are going to spend that much money on a player, that you do find a useful him. And he's slowly starting to develop. And you know, Gale coming off the bench and scoring um, for a team that previously didn't have any strikers. We now. You know, we've got Callum Wilson, who's, who's scoring a lot of goals this year. I mean, even yesterday, Wilson didn't, didn't score or assist, but he was he was crucial in our win. He was holding up the ball. He was creating chances. He just looks like a really good Premier League striker. Um, 
And if you probably, if you put him in that Sheffield United team, I think you'd see Sheffield United far higher off the table. So it was crucial that we did get him in. And, and, and as I say, Joe Linton's improving, Dwight Gale scoring goals. And I think that he's an underrated Premier League player. Always um, spoken about as he's, he's too good for the Championship, not good enough for the Premier League. But I think since lockdown, he's started to really prove himself as a Premier League player. And um, yeah, we're in quite a good position now, whereas at the start of the year, I was speculating who'd be our top scorer, and I was talking about Miguel Almiron. Now we've got three strikers that seem to be contributing. Um, yeah, we're not going to have another year where John Joe Shelby's our top scorer of six goals. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's pleasing and um, gives us a few options as well. And, and over the next month, um, room to rotate, which which is crazy for a Newcastle team that is normally very short on squad depth. Yeah, it's certainly nice, and you are getting those goals, which is. Uh, important as it turns out in football if you're trying to win matches and the like uh, all right we will head next into player watch and wrap up there just curious as we get closer to the january window just two weeks away really if there are any holes in your squad that you think you might fill from from a Southampton perspective i don't really think there is at the moment and that's testament to to the players who are currently out there performing so well for for ralph hasenhutel um the, the the club's model and the club's sustainability model at the moment is we can only spend what what we bring in. Um, our owner is actively looking to sell the club, so he's very much not putting money into the club for for us to buy players. So for, from a certain perspective, I don't see anyone coming in in January. Potentially a few departures out on loan for for a few young players, but at the moment, Ralph is more inclined to to use the players that he's got in his squad. And uh, and and use the the academy players if if there's holes that need to be filled. Yeah, I I think uh, certainly from a Spurs perspective, uh, there's been a <clears throat> bit of speculation about us adding another central defender because uh, I think uh, Jose was was disappointed to miss out on Skriniar, uh, and I'm not sure he's sold on Davinson Sanchez. Uh, but I, I like what I've seen so far of Joe Roden, and I'm optimistic that you know he'll become another uh, Mike England for us in a, in a, in a couple of seasons. Uh, there probably, I think, will be more talk um, in this window about who who'll move away. Uh, it was good to see Delhi back involved in the in the squad again today, for example. But um, the the stories, especially the PSG loan story, uh, don't seem to be going away. And actually, you know, thinking about him being in the squad today, that that incredible goal that he scored for us at Selhurst, that was nearly five years ago. And you you have to wonder why his career has plateaued the way the way that it has. Um, it's also pro- uh, probably no secret that Harry Winks wants to get more uh, more regular playing time. So. I wouldn't be surprised if 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 there was a move either a loan or a permanent move for him, uh, and uh, and Gedson Fernandez probably uh, is looking at, at doing something wrapping his loan uh, from Benfica up early. But um, I mean, jo- Jose has had long enough now, I think, to assess uh, the various assets that he has in the squad and and how the pieces fit. Um, but I, I suppose that the transfer story that I'm probably most concerned about, though, is that. Um, that Real Madrid might exercise their uh, their buyback clause for for Regulon at the end of the season, but um, you know I'm sure I'm sure Jose and, and Daniel Levy will have uh, planned for that eventuality. Yeah, I think for Newcastle, it's um, there's not going to be a lot going on, and spent quite a lot of money in the summer. We've also got I think it's like 28 or 29 senior players, so some of them don't even get in the Premier League squad. So if we're going to bring anybody in, we're going to have to move people on. 
maybe Yedlin will leave. I think he was nearly moved away in the, in the uh, summer. So if he left, maybe there would be a spot. I think the main players we've been linked to um, are going to be um, Premier League sort of top six defenders that we can load in. Yeah, I think they're the, the we I think we came close to getting Rob Holding in the summer. Then Arteta decided he wanted to keep him. Uh, we've been linked to Phil Jones, uh, Tamori. So I think that that's going to be the type of player we're looking at. Um, if we bring anybody in, it'll be a centre back, probably on loan from another Premier League team. So it's not going to be that glamorous. But um, yeah, hopefully, if we do get something done, that'd be good. Um, even if it is Phil Jones, maybe he could come in and, and repair his reputation, which seems um, ambitious to say the least. But we'll. Um, yeah, I don't think we're desperate for anybody, and uh, mm. I'd rather the club waited till the summer. Um, really, I don't think depending unless we go on a, a crazy seven, eight game losing run, which even though I think you've got some bad, I can't see that happening. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a great need to do anything other than maybe a loan if, if somebody becomes available. Gotcha. Well, then we'll kind of keep an eye out. If our three clubs are anything to go by, it sounds like it might be a pretty slow January window, which has been progressively becoming the case, but it could be even more so with uh, finances down due to the COVID stoppage and everything like that. Uh, we will end the show there. Those of you would like to tell folks where they could find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Sam E. Cox. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at, uh, at Steve McGookin. Uh, if you want to check out my uh, non-football writing, go to northernslant.com. And uh, Kevin, thanks for having me back on. I just wanted to very quickly acknowledge the sad death of Paolo Rossi, uh, captivating performance in the 1982 World Cup, passed away way too early recently. And uh, and I, I was reminded of something that he said in a in a film reflecting on, on Italy's World Cup victory, he said that um, even after your best games, there are conflicting emotions. You're happy you've won, but then the fact that the, the game or the tournament is is over uh, means you just can't wait to, to play again. And I, I think that's that's where we all are at the moment, um, even, if, even if we're only just watching. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks uh, so much for listening. You get me on Twitter at JJF with two ends. Um, and I'm also on the Championship Show on this channel, which you can get on Twitter at Championship Pod. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on today, guys. And Steve, thanks for your kind words there. Uh, if you'd like to find the show, you can do so on Twitter at EPL Roundtable. You can also find it on all the podcasting apps. Uh, not at EPL Roundtable, but just type it in. <laughs> it should pop up. Uh, for me, you can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. Uh, thanks again to you guys so much for coming on. It was a pleasure as always. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.